0: Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Jeff, and I serve on the men's ministry here at Chapel Street. Um, Brian, do we have to have the lights so so bright because I look better in the dark? Yeah, sorry about the the ricochet there. Um, Hey, if you're new here, I especially want to welcome you. It's always great to have guests come to our North Aurora campus to. Check out what Chapel Street is all about. So a special welcome to those of you that might be new here today. I want to cover a few announcements, if you don't mind. Um, Obviously, we got an extra hour of sleep, which also means it's going to be dark at around 1 (laughs) o'clock, which also means we're kind of coming into a busy time of year, right? So there are a few announcements today. The first one I'm really excited about, and this is for men only. Sorry, ladies, but uh, normally we have our second Saturday breakfast, which would be next Saturday. But instead, we're going over to the main campus, and we hired a company called On The Mark. And what they do is they put together events that are dangerous, like tomahawk throwing, crossbows, bow and arrows, you know, manly stuff. Um, And so it's next Saturday, and it's $20, and so you need to sign up. There's a limited amount of space. We're doing it indoors in the church. How's that going to work? No idea. So, men, we get to spend $20 to put our life in harm's way. It's going to be great. Um, next Sunday, we have a couple of, of things right here at North Aurora. The first one is baptism. Uh, we have six people signed up to be baptized next Sunday, so you want to be coming back for that. That's always an exciting time to see you know, a Christian... Um, publicly acknowledge their faith that they want to follow christ Um, if you have not been baptized it's not too late Um, after the service if you go to the welcome table you can go ahead and sign up Uh, i believe heather will be there to take your information so we'd love to have you last minute Um, and then the other thing is after the service next sunday we have a free lunch coming in so a great opportunity to share a meal together talk to some old friends meet some new people and just build into this North Aurora community. So we hope you'll stick around after the service uh, next Sunday. Coming up right after Thanksgiving is our uh, child dedication. dedication and kind of like baptism, it's a way for you to publicly profess that you're going to raise your child to follow Jesus. And so there's, a, there's two class options. One is today at 11. I'm sure you're not going to make that one. Because uh, Jeff Frazier is going to talk past 11. Um, And then the second, so the second one is virtual. It's on Monday the 20th via Zoom, and so you can sign up to have your child dedicated on November 26th. Uh, We we hope you'll do that. And then finally, I hate to do it, but it's time to talk about Christmas. We have our annual Christmas concert on December 9th and 10th at Kesslinger. It's a huge event. There's over 70 people in the choir. And so um, my understanding is that it's a powerful way to kind of get into the spirit of Christmas. And again, that's on December 9th and 10th. Tickets do go fast, and they're only $5. So please uh, register as soon as you know that you can make that event. And it's a great opportunity to invite a friend as well to uh, help them really understand the true meaning of the Christmas season. So with that, Stetson, take it away.
1: Wow, that's just in time. We got to talk about the timing of this service. Yeah. You got to like stretch out that worship song, make it last a little longer. It's great to be here. Give me a second. Talk amongst yourselves. And all kidding aside, I was at our South Street campus and I said, uh, I get to be here in the North Aurora. But I was talking kind of fast, and they heard me say "at North Aurora," and they went South Street. I went, "Hey, hey, relax." <laughs> so, it's good to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Jeff Frazier. I serve as the lead pastor of Chapel Street Church. The pastor of this campus, Andrew Griffiths, is uh, out of town. He's with his wife Janae there in New York. She's running the New York City Marathon. And uh, if you, uh, yeah, and uh, no, Andrew is. If you want to have some fun, get on Facebook, follow Andrew Griffiths. He gives little updates and talks about, uh, well, just, you can watch it, yeah, yeah, let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, a beautiful fall morning, a great chance to be together as the family of God. Thank you for your work in our lives, your grace that we often take for granted. We are your people, and we need to hear from you, so we ask you to speak to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, I like history, I don't know if, how many of you love history, Anybody? Okay, good. Maybe you didn't like it in school, but you like it now. I love history. I love learning about it. I love little fascinating tidbits and facts. This is a picture. Anybody know this? Anybody take a guess? It's in the book of Kells. Have you heard of the book of Kells? One of the great illuminated manuscripts of the Gospels. It's in the Trinity uh, College uh, Library in Dublin. My wife and I had a chance to be there and see this book. This is a picture of St. Columba, one of the patron saints of the island of Ireland. I mean, of course, the the best known is St. Patrick. But Columba uh, was born in um, 521 A.D. Remarkable young man, like brilliant, spoke many languages, uh, was a scholar. Uh, And so he founded the monastic community on the island of Iona. You can go there today, see the church and the the historical relics. That island and the monastic community that was there became a, a sort of hub of monastic scholarship, translating the scriptures. So while the great libraries of Rome and Constantinople and Alexandria were burning because of the barbarian invasions, Celtic monks were furiously transcribing and copying uh, the scriptures and other Christian classics and preserving it for us. Columba at Iona was one of the monks that founded this, facility, this, this, this monastic community. They're not only scholarship and translation, but also mission, Christian mission. From Iona launched many Christian missionary initiatives around the British Isles and even into Europe. But you may not know how the community at Iona started, which is an interesting little bit of history for you. So Columba was a scholar monk who studied under a man named Finian. Finian founded a community of, of scholars to translate the scriptures and to uh, study the scriptures and to launch into Christian mission um, and in Ireland. Finian came home from Rome after a, a pilgrimage there, bringing with him a copy of the Latin Vulgate, specific, that's Jer- St. Jerome's, and he was a friend of Jerome's grandson. Jerome's Latin Vulgate, who's heard of the Latin Vulgate, Anybody? It's the uh, the Vulgate means common, so the Latin translation of the Scriptures in the common language of the day, Latin for Rome. He brought that home with him to Ireland, and Columba, that's a picture of Columba right there, was so excited about this that he took without permission a copy of the Psalms in Latin from Finian's library and began to translate it. And uh, was about three quarters of the way done when Finian found out that he had taken this without permission. Finian demanded the copy be returned because Columba had not followed protocol and the scriptorium and so on, and Columba refused, saying, God has put on my heart that I should translate the Psalms into the the Gaelic, the language of my people, for for the distribution, and I can't stop until it's been finished. So he wouldn't give it back. This dispute got so intense that it went to the king, the Irish king a king which most of you won't know, and I can't pronounce his name, King Diarmat Mac Serbael. I can't say it in Gaelic. And he uh, ruled on this case, and here's what he said. To every cow belongs its calf, so to every book belongs its copy. In other words, give back the copy, Columba. Columba said, no, I won't. I must obey God. He's put on my heart to translate this. He wouldn't give it back. You, now, I, want you to, I want to pause here, and, say, and this is going somewhere, other than just being historically interesting. Columba and Finian, this conflict was so intense that they both recruited armed men to their cause because he wouldn't, he wouldn't give it up. And what resulted from this is a battle known as the Battle of the D'Erimen, which means the Battle of the Book. 2,000 Irish men died in this battle. Pause for a minute. Men who had given their life to the study of the Word of God So the spread of the word of God to Christian mission got so angry over a debate about who should be able to translate the Psalms that they fought a war in which 2,000 men died. Why do I tell you that story? In the aftermath of that that battle, Columba was faced with three options, exile, execution, or excommunication. There was lots of debate, but they eventually exiled him to the island of... Iona, which is where he founded the monastery and Christian mission flourished. So the founding of this monastery that we know about, and people still go there on pilgrimage today, came out of this war, his exile. The point is, first of all, it's just interesting. I like history. But also, Christians historically have done terrible things to each other. People who have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus, committed themselves to the word of God and to the spread of the word of God have done awful things in the name of him who they claim to serve. That was true in the 5th century, in the 550 AD. It was true in 2023 AD, for sure. And it was true in the 1st century, in 50 AD, when we come to the book of James, the letter that James wrote to these churches. These Jewish believers who now believed in Christ and were in these churches in the the diaspora, in the Roman world. Let's look at James chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. You can follow on the screen or in your own Bible. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you, do not, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, as we've seen, James James doesn't mix words. Whoops. And he drops his notes. Excuse me for a minute. James, uh, is, is um, he, he blasts away at us, quite frankly. And I think it's, it can be a little bit disconcerting. I don't know if you feel that way. But James is hammering away here at these, these followers of Jesus who have fights and quarrels. And if we're, I think part of it is, what's going on in this church, these churches? Do you catch that? They have quarrels and fights among them. He uses the phrase murder. I've heard people say things like, well, we just need to return to the early church, to the church in the first century. That would be good. (laughs) Well, if you read the New Testament carefully, I'm not sure that's a good idea. They had issues, and we have issues, and so we can relate to them. These Jewish Christian congregations that James is writing to were shot through with conflicts, conflicts between rich and poor. We saw that in chapter 2, favoritism and excluding the poor and favoring the rich. Verbal conflicts, the use of their tongue, curse, praising God and cursing each other. Conflicts that involves gossip and slander and uncontrolled tongues, bitter jealousy, selfish ambitions, and the list goes on. So James puts this sort of question to them, and I think to us. Where is this coming from? What's the root cause of all this bitterness? What, are you, what, what really is going on in your hearts that would cause you to behave this way? And this section of the letter is not a new theme. We're going to get there next week. James is not introducing a new theme. He's pausing and saying everything that's come before, the taming of the tongue, conflicts between rich and poor, and so on, all of this, he's pausing now and saying, let's talk about what's really happening. Are you willing to face it and deal with it? Back in chapter 1, James called the word of God, the law of liberty. Remember this? A mirror. Do you remember when he called it a mirror? And he said, the one who looks at the word of God, the law of liberty, and goes away and doesn't do it, is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looked like. In other words, I think in chapter 4, 1 through 12, James is saying, do you see? Do you see your true condition? Are you willing to face it and to deal with it? That's what's happening here. And he begins by addressing two kinds of conflict. The first, I think, is obvious, conflict with others. Conflict with others. When you read James, it makes you wonder, what's going on here? Is murder hyperbole or metaphor, or is this real? Scholars debate this, and there's actually some New Testament scholars that think perhaps, we don't know for sure, but perhaps this infighting had gotten so severe that it had risen to the level of physical violence. Part of the reason I told you the story of St. Columba known as this patriot saint of the island of Iona. It's possible that happened, but maybe it's a metaphor. Either way, it's serious. And he's really echoing what his brother Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. If you skip there, I think I'm out of order on your slides. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What's Jesus' point here that James is echoing? That seed, which if full grown, remember when James says earlier in chapter one, sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Right? Where it desires in our own hearts. Jesus says, If you, though you might not say it because you're you're, mature enough to hold your tongue, or you might not act on it, but in your heart, if you hate somebody, despise them, ridicule them, write them off, the seeds that would, if left unchecked, give rise to murder are already there. They're already in your heart. I think that's what Jesus is saying, and that's what James is saying here. He's less concerned with the specific details, that we might wonder, and more concerned with the root cause. And so he's talking about this. But I think it's important for us to grasp here that James is saying that the the, the issue is what's happening inside you. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, James' answer to the question, his own question, what's the problem? What's really going on? Is that is it, uh, your desires are at war within you. So, I want you to take your finger right now. very go like this. Come on, everybody. Point at me. Now, go like this right? The issue James is saying, and this is so hard for us to get, I struggle with this, is not out there. It's not them. It's not those people. That does not mean that as Christians, we don't discern between right from wrong, truth from error. We do. But fundamentally, James is saying, your biggest problem is not there, it's here. Your passions are at war within you. There's a battle going on inside of you. That's the big problem in the church in James' day, and quite frankly, I think, in our day. Your own passions and desires are in conflict. In fact, the language he uses is war and conflict. The ultimate aim of your life becomes your own desire. You'll see on the screen here, too, translation of Greek words. Passions, uses in, in this translation, is the Greek word hedone, It's where we get our English word hedonism from. Who knows what hedonism means? Anybody? Yeah, what does it mean? The pursuit of pleasure, right? Yeah, it means your ultimate goal and good for your life is your own pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Like pursue what you want in life. So pleasure and desire. Then the second word James uses is your desires are out of control. It's a Greek word, uh, oh, I'm sorry, You know what happened? I didn't fix that for you. It says epitome of. Here's what uh, Google Translate does. It's wrong and it messes you up. It should say epithume, Greek word. So it translated that I didn't fix it. Epithume means epi meaning over, thume meaning desire, an over desire, a desire that's over your life. So the point James is making is a desire out of control, a desire that consumes you. Your desire to have your way your personal pleasure, your personal gain is consuming and controlling you. It's become your functional God, which is why in, chapter, in verse 4 he says, you adulterous people. We'll get to that in a minute. You follow what he's saying? Now, I want to pause here. The point is that it's not wrong to have desires. It's not wrong to have desires for pleasure. God is the God of delight and joy. Read the Psalms. What the problem is, is when your desire, passion for your own gain, your own good to have your own way consumes and controls you, that's death to your soul and destructive to the Christian community. And that's what's going on in the church that James is writing to. Your inner life becomes a battleground, he says. I remember years ago, meeting with a man whose wife was, I knew her and I knew her. their kids and he was kind of connected to the church, but not really. And she asked if I could meet. I saw her, and she said that he had left and moved out. They were separated and was grieving over that. And she said, would you meet with him? I said, well, I will, but I, I, he's got to want to meet with me. Sometimes people think that a, the pastor can just show up and sprinkle pastor dust on somebody in one co- cup of coffee, and it's all going to be fine. It doesn't work that way. You know what I mean, Dr. Day, right? Anyway, we met for a cup of coffee, I talked with him. And he said, you know, I haven't been happy in this marriage for 20 years. And doesn't God want us to be happy aren't I doing us both a favor by ending this? With all the love of Christ in my heart, I want to reach across the table and choke him. <laughs> not really. It's not about your happiness. The, the, in fact, quite frankly, the fastest way to a life of misery is to live for your own happiness. G.K. Chesterton once said, you want to find out, if you want to find out why hedonism does not work, pursue it. You find out how empty it is, how bottomless it is, how there's nothing there for you. That's what James is getting at here when he says, your issue is not with them, it's inside your own life and your own heart. You're letting your desires control you. Now, that doesn't mean the Christian life is a life of negation. Some people think this, right? Christians, you just can't do a bunch of stuff, and you suffer, and you mope around, and you're glum, and then in heaven you have a party. That's not the Christian life. We should be the most pleasure-seeking people. But the point is, James is saying, you're seeking it in the wrong place. Your desires are attached to the wrong object. Thomas Chalmers, a Puritan pastor, wrote a sermon, an unbelievable sermon. It's a terrible title, but it's a great sermon. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. It's not like (laughs) nobody likes that title, but you should read it. You can Google it. Here's an excerpt. Self versus self is the root of all conflict. The best way to overcome the self and the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Think about that. The best way to overcome the world which we'll get to when James talks about in a minute, is not by trying harder. Moral reformation. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. This is what James is getting at. The scriptures are filled with references, especially in the Psalms, to enjoyment and joy and pleasure and delight. C.S. Lewis in his classic work, The Screwtape Letters. Who's read The Screwtape Letters? Anybody? Oh, my, my people. Right? If you haven't, let me give you a little background. Lewis wrote this book. It's fiction. It's letters between one demon and another. So Screwtape is writing to his nephew, Wormwood. Now, Lewis doesn't think, the Bible doesn't teach that demons have nephews and uncles and they don't write letters. It's, it's, he's illustrating a point. But Screwtape is writing to Wormwood about how, and advising him on how to mess up a human's life your life. So when you hear the word enemy in this letter, it refers to God. Here's what he says. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and fulfilling form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, that is God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times and in ways and in degrees which he has forbidden for their good. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure. Now listen to this. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's our formula. This is demon's writing. Did you catch that? An ever-increasing craving and desire. is that what James says? Your desires are at war within you. For an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's our formula to keep people bitter and unhappy and unsatisfied. The problem is not that we have desires. is that we're chasing the wrong object. Lewis and James get that. This is the heart of idolatry, quite frankly. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2 says, My people have committed two sins. They have rejected me, the source of living water, and they've dug broken cisterns that cannot hold water. In other words, they've walked away from the source of their pleasure and delight and joy, and they're trying to drink from a poisoned well. This brings us to the second point, conflict with God. Conflict with God. James says, your problem is not just with them. It's not only just with you. It's actually with God. Here we come to the heart of James's challenge and I think his plea for us as the church. Look at verses four, chapter four, verses four through five. Once more. You adulterous people. Hold on. There's an exclamation point there. Let Let me read that again. You adulterous people. I don't know why you laugh at that. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Adultery. Whoa. That's harsh. But over and over in the Old Testament, God is called a jealous God, and we, he, it talks about his spousal love for his people the children of Israel, the people of God. And when they rebel and reject God, they're like an unfaithful spouse who God grieves over and pursues. And when we come to the New Testament, how are we referred to the church in Ephesians chapter 5 as what? The bride of Christ, and he's the groom. So when we chase after the world, we are the unfaithful spouse. James is echoing the, the, the witness of Scripture throughout. And what his point is, that friendship with the world, he's referring, now, there's lots in this world that God says is good. We've seen the, the hymn from Martin Luther, this is my father's world, right? Rocks and trees and skies and seas, his hands thy wonders wrought. Like there's a lot in this world, a beautiful fall morning like today, changing of the colors, crisp air, the, the sport of football, whatever it is you love, right, you know, like, like apple cider. Like whatever it is that you love, the, the joy of friendships and family, a reconciled relationship, the kiss of your, of your son or daughter, all the good things in life that we love. That's good in the world. It's good. There's lots of this world we should delight in. But friendship with the world means friendship with, friendship with those systems of society and culture that would cause you to live for your own good, your own pleasure, and your own gain. That is exactly opposed to the character of God. Friendship with that world is actually an act of infidelity. It's betrayal, adultery. We are the unfaithful spouse when we pursue after the world. Why? Because Christ, our groom, died for us, redeemed us, called us into his family, loves us. It's betraying him when we do that. This is serious language that James uses here. He's echoing the Old Testament prophetic language. Okay, you might think, okay, I kind of get that, but enemy of God? I'm not an enemy of God. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not an enemy of God. Actually, James says, when you chase after those desires and passions and align yourself with the trajectory of this world, you're running away from God. You're living contrary to his will and character. You are at odds with him. The definition of an enemy. So maybe the question just for us is this. Think back of your life in the last 12 months, your, your spiritual life. Are you today a better friend of God or friend of the world? Are you more in line with the character and will of God or more in line with the trajectory of this world? Are your desires and actions more formed by, shaped by, influenced by the cares of this world? Or the word of God? Verse 5 is a little bit, um, actually this weekend, our preaching team meeting on on Thursday, we meet every Thursday, all of us who preach and work through the text, we wrestle with verse 5 because it's a little bit confusing. You'll see it on the screen there. It says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, in quotes, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Here's the problem. Often when you see the scripture says, it's a direct reference to some Old Testament verse. You find it in your footnotes. Here it's not. There's no Old Testament verse that says that. So it's, it's what, is he, what scripture is he referring to? Most scholars think he's paraphrasing the jealousy of God. Now we hear the word jealous, and you think it's a, like that's not a good thing to be jealous, right? He, God does not, It does not mean God is jealous of you. He's not jealous of you. He's God. He's not envying you. He's jealous for you. And there's a difference. The Old Testament and the New Testament. God is. Jealous, that is, he's longing and yearning for you to return to him. And when you wander from him, he grieves over that. His spirit grieves over that. His spirit works in you to remind you and nudge you and draw you back. That's essentially what James is saying. Let me me paraphrase it for you. When you follow after the world, you align your heart with the cares of the world. When you make your own desire for what you want supreme, God sees that. And God grieves over it. And God deeply longs for you to return to him. Because he knows where it's going to lead you if you don't. I think this is important for us to pause. Because sometimes I'm guilty of this. Somebody who claims to be a Christian and lives according to the world. you know people like this? Maybe you're like, right? And you, it's easy to write them off. I pray for them. I want them to return. But, you know, part of me is like, well, they made their choice. That is not God's heart. Sometimes his mercy is severe, but his heart is always a longing for them to return, to come back to him. I remember years ago, I've told this story before, but being in Target, and uh, not that I was in Target years ago, I, I go to Target more than that, but anyway, the point is, I saw this guy from across the aisle, you know, over the top of the aisle, and he saw me, and I saw that he saw me, and he saw that I saw that he saw me, you know? And he's like, oh, he looked down, pretend like he didn't see me. But I know what's going on. And I thought I hadn't seen him in church for years. And I know what was happening in his life. And I don't know why he avoided eye contact. And part of him wanted just to go, oh, that's the shame, and go on with my day. But I walked over and made small talk with him and said, hey, I miss you, how are you doing? He so, said, oh, you know. Uh, the truth is, I know the brokenness of his life and he's seeing my face was some reminder that he felt guilty. That's not God's heart. God's heart is that we would run back to him, return to him, and receive again the grace that he offers so if you know somebody or if you have turned away maybe you're here and you've showed up again God's heart for you is not he doesn't turn his back on you does not write you off he's not done with you he's jealous for you to come back to him this leads us to the last point the experience of grace we use that phrase around here a lot to experience grace to grow in faith and to make an impact But this is, friends, this is the best part. This is such the best part of this letter. Uh, Despite all our conflict with others, all the war in our own heart and soul, and all our wrongdoing and unfaithfulness, he's unchanging in his love for us. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that, well, God in the Old Testament was sort of grumpy, but Jesus is nice. But actually, if you go back and read the Old Testament, Exodus 34 tells us this, that the revelation, the self-revelation of God, the fundamental identity of who he is, He appears to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and grace. Right? He he forgives from generation to generation. He's faithful. This is who God is. And this is what James tells us in James 4, verses 6 through 10. Let's look again at the text. But he gives more grace. Hey, if you have your Bible and you like to highlight or underline or circle or star, circle that one. Those first five words. But he gives more grace. Think of all that's come before this. Adultery, fights, quarrels, murder, covetousness, war within you. But he gives more grace but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. I love those first lines, but he gives more grace. By the way, that's not saving grace. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins receives saving grace. That grace which we know, we're going to celebrate in communion in a few moments, that grace which comes to us through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, floods into our hearts, forgives our sin, our past is redeemed, our present makes sense, and our future is secure. Everybody who believes in Jesus has that grace. It's a different grace. It's more grace. It's the grace that you and I need just to live faithfully. In a world full of brokenness, and division, and fighting, and deception, and injustice. I need that. Do you need that grace? I do. The grace you need dads, fathers in here. You need to be faithful to your children. The grace you need when you screw up as a husband and a father. The grace you wives need when you fail. The grace every one of us needs just to get by. And try to be faithful to the call of God in our lives. He gives more of it. This is such good news. Augustine said, what God demands from us, he gives to us. John chapter 1 verse 16, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, some of you know this story, right? Paul the apostle has a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what it was. People debate this. Some ailment, some struggle that was troubling him. So much so that he pleaded with God to take it away. Who knows what God said? Anybody? Come on. Say it again. My grace is sufficient sufficient for you. I know you don't normally answer out loud to the pastor, but this is kind of fun. (laughs) My grace is sufficient. Meaning, the answer is not to answer Paul's prayer the way he wanted, but my grace is enough. It's enough for you. And by the way, Paul, I'll give you more of it when you think you can't handle it. It's sufficient. Well, what's the condition to receiving this all-sufficient grace? Now, some of you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa time out. Wait a minute, condition for grace? Grace is the free gift of God. Grace is unmerited favor. It's, we don't, we, well, we don't, there's no condition. It's, free, it's unconditionally given. I don't mean condition in terms of how you earn it or deserve it, because you don't. But the posture in which you have to receive it. There is a condition in which we receive this gift of God freely given. And James tells us, in a word, it's humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble. And verses 7 through 9 of the text are all about what this humility looks like. Notice the pairing of words. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. So resist the devil in the world and draw near to God. There's actions we must do. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. That is mourning over our own sin, recognizing the seriousness of our own betrayal. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, humility is an interesting thing. Humility is the one virtue you don't get by focusing on it. Have you noticed this? Like you don't like you can become more. How do you become more humble? By trying hard to be humble. I, personally, I, I have been working on my humility. I don't know, if you, have you noticed? Well, I mean, I, let me tell you about it. I mean, I'm really humble. I mean, I'm w- way more humble than I was even a week ago. God's really working on me, and I'm so humble, right? It doesn't work. Like, it's ridiculous even. Even, like, it doesn't make sense. Humility is a byproduct. And maybe you've heard C.S. Lewis paraphrase as saying, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Have you heard that before? That he didn't say that. The, the internet is full of bad quotes by, of C.S. Lewis. But what he actually said is even better. Let's, let's see it on the screen here. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He'll not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody, that false humility. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step the first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggest step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you're very conceited indeed. <laughs> so if you're sitting here and you're thinking, Well, I'm I I'm not a proud person, but I know people who are. That warning bell should be going off in your mind and heart. All of us. Though we might know how to couch this and and cover it and pretend otherwise, have a proud, selfish and self-righteous heart. That's the war within us. our passions and desires are war within us. But God gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace to us. And the first step toward that, posture, purify your hands, cleanse your hearts right, right weep, mourn and wail, is to recognize that I am proud. I am sinful. I need grace. Let's go back to verse six again because it's the best verse in this whole passage. If, you, if you've listened to nothing else, I hope you walk out with this. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. I don't, I don't know what you're dealing with. Maybe some of you are dealing with, with um, really crushing personal failure. You've screwed up. He gives more Maybe some of you are staring at the end of a marriage in the face and you're not sure what to do about it. He gives more grace. Maybe you're facing an illness or a diagnosis that's terminal or somebody you love is facing that. He gives more grace. Maybe you're a control freak and you need to have your way and you've never lost an argument or admitted that you have. (laughs) He gives more grace. Maybe you're beat down with self-loathing You've always felt not good enough. He gives more grace. Maybe you're holding on to some wound from years ago in the past and you just can't let it go and you, it's eating you up with bitterness and unforgiveness. He gives more grace. Whatever it is, he gives more grace. James is writing to these churches and there's all kinds of issues then and now. Doing ridiculous, horrible things in the name of their faith in God. They say, look, your problem is not with them. It's in here. And ultimately, it's between you and God. You're making yourselves enemies of the one you claim to worship. Turn around. Turn back to him. Recognize your pride, your sinfulness. Throw yourselves on his mercy because he's longing to shower you with grace, to pour it out on you. That's James's word to these churches, and I think to the church today, to us as well. And so we're going to close with communion. I'm not sure how we're doing, how are we doing this. We're going to set it up. I'm going to set it up right now. Okay. And before? Sing before? Um, we got these cups. So, you'll set it up when so are we going to, my point is, are we going to worship first or after? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so if you have your cups, pull them out. Let me pray and, as we prepare our hearts. Father in heaven, You give us more grace, and the only condition by which we can receive it is to fall on our faces in humility, to surrender to You. And You long to do that. You're jealous that we would receive more grace from You. We ask Your forgiveness for chasing after the things of this world, the cares of this world, our own selfish desires, what we think will make us happy, and it never does. Your jealousy is not just for your glory, but for our good. And so, Lord, in this moment, we, right now, return to you. We humble ourselves before you. To the foot of the cross, where you remind us the place where we first received mercy and grace. through The sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus. pray this in your name. Let's peel off that bottom layer together. Hold the bread in your hands. And I just want to remind you what the scripture tells us, that Jesus took bread, he called himself the bread of life, and he said, this is my body. It is given for you. Eat this in his memory. As you peel off that top layer, Jesus said... On the night that he was betrayed after they'd eaten, he took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And every time we eat the bread and drink the cup as his followers, we proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns. Let's do that together. Amen. Mm. Receive the benediction this morning. May the God who gives more grace Shower you with his grace. May his grace be with you and with your spirit and with all God's people now and forever. Amen. And go in peace.